0: Hi, and welcome to this episode of the VFX show. We are, well, nope. That's where we are, we're nope. And nope uh, noping with me is Matt Wallen. How are you, Matt?
1: I'm doing good. First week back at school, and I will admit to being very, very tired, but I'm super excited to talk about this movie because I really liked it.
0: Well, uh, we're also joined by Jason Diamond. And Jason, I gotta say, I only saw this movie because you told me to. Uh,
2: and I hope uh, as we get into it, because actually we have not spoken about your reaction to it. So I am hoping it's a good one. This might be a rarity where Matt is all in with me and you.
0: <laughs>
2: uh, I am also a little tired. We I have a, been prepping for the last month for a two-week shoot starting next week, including a week in
0: L.A. So that'll be fun. Awesome. That sounds good. Yeah. I mean, I'm tired also, just so uh, I can be part of the gang. Okay, guys. So... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Let's start actually with why I wouldn't I wouldn't have gone to see this film. For me, the uh the number one reason why someone would see this film is because they'd seen something that the director had done before, and not because the trailer informed you in any way sensibly about what this film was about or even what genre it was. Matt, do you agree with that? Or is it like was it well marketed in the US? I mean, I think the trailer, it had
1: it. They did a couple different iterations of the trailer. I think when it was sort of a teaser, it was sort of like, oh, Jordan Peel's got a new movie. It's called Nope. Like, this looks crazy. This could be really fun. Like there wasn't much of a, a sense of what it was and at least the way they rolled out the, the trailer sort of, um, <clears throat> you know, marketing bits, the, I think the second, like the proper trailer trailer really started to reveal what felt like, Oh, this is Jordan Peele making a movie about aliens. Um, you know, and, and there was a lot of, um, cryptic illusions to uh, Mm -hmm. a a certain kind of uh, film, but it wasn't really, uh, yeah, it was, it just, it had a tongue in cheek kind of sense of humor in the marketing material, but it wasn't clear what it was. And I think the marketing was really relying on the, the I think the intense popularity, at least here in the United mm-hmm. States, among like you know film goers, like people love uh, Jordan Peele. He's got a huge mm-hmm. following from his days on the uh, Key and Peele, you know, the comedy show that he did. But also both his years.
2: movies were received really well, and his uh, yeah his first
0: and film the Oscars
1: for Get time. Out and everything, yeah, yeah. So it's like you or know, nominations. He's, he's like a super hot commodity right now, for sure.
0: So. Jason, what genre is this film? Uh, I I would make it a
2: uh, sci-fi social commentary, okay. uh, which IMGb. I believe is maybe something of a, a, a 20, 2020s or late 2000s kind of adding social commentary to a genre is probably
1: reasonable at this point. I think kind of in, I, yeah, I think that's a great, like a social commentary sci-fi in the tradition of, for me anyway, of, some of the great with a, with a 21st century, uh, twist, but mm-hmm. it's kind of like the, in the great tradition of the 1950s science fiction films around the time right. of the red scare and the house on the mm-hmm. American activities committee, the blacklist and like the making of films like them, um, the day the earth stood still, uh, mm-hmm. invasion of the body snatchers. And it kind of plays into that side of, sort of thing, but with a completely different bend that I think is yeah. really coming from you know, from the mind of the the, the writer, the filmmaker.
0: I, I would give you that it was bent. Um, IMDb had it down as horror, mystery, sci-fi. I don't know that IMDb has a category I mean, for political, modern-day political commentary. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, I wouldn't say I it's political think...
2: commentary. It's it's no, I'm sorry, social I mean, commentary. To, to be well, but it's also to be fair. I think it's really mostly a commentary on the entertainment system and Hollywood in general,
0: specifically. Yes. yes. Uh, I think we'd agree that not if there was a strong metaphor, say, but... <laughs> if there's a strong metaphor here, it's uh, the entertainment industry uh, scooping people up, chewing them out, and spitting them out. Um, <laughs> exactly. That would be also the a
1: dominant spectacle, metaphor, though. Too, I think the the spectacle, sort yeah. of media and American, and, and maybe it's not just American. I think it's probably pretty global, but the obsession with spectacle.
0: Yes. Yes, yes. Okay, we're going to have to get into the the metaphysics of it in a second. Uh, but before we do, just at the – and we'll get into the visual effects after that, but just at the top level, right, uh, I don't think Jordan Peele is widely as widely known here as he is in the US. And okay. uh, certainly his films outside the US I don't think have had quite the sort of run that they have critically. Uh, then, So that's part of it. I think part of it was I just think it's – a film that's hard to market because because um, it's not playing to an obvious genre. And I think that's a big reason why it didn't do the kind of box office that people were hoping that it was going to do because it certainly hasn't been a huge runway box office success. Um, it's not uh, a failure by any stretch of the imagination. By my count, it's, you know, well into profitability. I think it was made for about $68 million and it's grossed, you know, $260 million worldwide. So it's fine, but I'm just like... There was certainly an expectation here when that was going on that it was going to be a bigger film at the box office and it kind of went away i, I
2: think the word of mouth i honestly i would argue that the word of mouth was probably and it's just speculation like it's not even though i mean spoiler alert we've already sort of mentioned it but you know for as an alien film it is it is not if you want to compare this to another alien film in a very similar way, I would say Signs from M. Night Shyamalan is a similar film Yep. in that it's a it's a enclosed kind of uh, story. Even though they go out from the main thing, they're at the farmhouse and same as Signs. Signs has more of a different take on the media, but they're using the media in like a just post 9-11 sense of sort of people glued to their TVs for news, whereas um, they they have a more um, proactive approach in Nope. But I, I think um, people, I, I would think that people who saw this movie and didn't quite like the ending maybe, because it gets super esoteric at the end, it's not a, it's like it starts as a Shyamalan movie and the twist is it's a Kubrick movie, you know, like it just <laughs> kind of flips over at the end to this really kind of high concept uh not really understanding what's happening, but kind of understanding it thing for the general audience, maybe they wouldn't have recommended it to friends and family because they didn't quite understand it or not. I'm not trying to talk down to people, but I'm just saying it, it it's not a it's not a slam dunk ending for yeah. I loved it, but I don't know is it a broad ending
0: i I would say that. When you make Aliens films, uh, most people expect kind of more obvious bipedal aliens. Right. Um And so you're sort of going in with an expectation of an alien being a thing that you could talk to or rationalise or shoot or, you know, it somehow kind of manifests itself in a classic Hollywood kind of way. Hey, um, just before I move off, do you want to comment on the cinematography, which I was very impressed with?
2: Um, yeah, I mean, it's Hoyt Van Hoytema's – you know, gorgeous cinematography, IMAX, you know, we'll get into sort of the techniques and stuff that they use later, but I mean, overall the cinematography was beautiful. Um, really, really, uh, I mean, he's a master at this point. I mean, he's had his hands, quite has had the ability outside of his talent. He's had the ability to practice his talent with IMAX and large format, cameras in large format cinematography with Nolan and, and uh, all the other films that he's done, Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy, stuff, you know, like stuff like that. Like, uh, right. He shot that. Am I wrong? Pretty sure he shot that. Uh, But I mean, he, he, he clearly has the, not only the talent, but the pedigree of the experience to really take this film where it needed to go. uh, I think, I mean, you know, overall just really,
1: gorgeous cinematography.
0: So Matt, can I get you to talk about how far you take the symbolism of a film? And did you take it further in this film? Because you know, the director has a remarkable reputation for layered visual significance and symbolism, or were you just like, I mean, do you feel like you just went there naturally?
1: I think, I I mean, it's, it's a great question. I think, you know, as a structure, as a film, it's, the things I, I really enjoyed about it uh, were that it didn't play into my expectations in any way, really. It was very different from any expectations I might've had. And so in that, I found it really refreshing. And I think that the uh, the overarching kind of plot and then the sort of thematic and the kind of comedic, um, <clears throat> as well as kind of some of the science fiction-y kind of bits also sort of played against my expectations. And I think there, I, I, you know, it's a film that I've thought a lot about since seeing it. I'm still trying to kind of wrap my head around parts of it, images from it. There's a an image of the, uh, which we can get into a little later, but an image of sort of the main UFO thing that it looks like a, a, the bottom of a Stetson cowboy hat you know Mm -hmm. as it's coming in and so it's almost as if there are uh there's an effort i think to talk about certainly um the exploitation of uh animals in films the exploitation of and the exploitation uh of people and the exploitation people engage in of uh spectacle of uh targets of opportunity to create entertainment uh for others and the the sort of perils that that uh uh contains within uh i mean i think there's some really interesting pretty heady thematic things in it but it's one where like i don't know that my um impressions and interpretations of the narrative are the intent of the filmmaker But I think what's exciting is that it feels like it's so rich with potential uh, Mm -hmm. metaphorical and symbolic and thematic elements that I think there's a lot of different ways in for a viewer to really uh, try to sort of um, understand both where the filmmakers coming from, but also to kind of go along with the ride. And sort of I I really found myself I saw it with my son before he went off to school and um, we talked about it. You know for days afterwards like we'd be thinking about it and we were you know take a walk and we'd be talking about it still and i think that that to me is the mark of a really interesting um product an interesting execution of a film an interesting artwork where you can't quite pin it down you know
0: i guess the thing that i'm interested in at one level is so yes uh the film has a lot of and we'll get into these broader aspects of the um symbolism of stuff that's going on but there's just lots of little stuff in there. And I'm not sure whether people read in like extra stuff because it's his film. Um, the, I'll give you an example. The beginning of the film, there's the you know, Massacre on set, which is a sitcom in an age of being shot on film. So all the cameras, and what, there are a lot of cameras in this film, and not by accident. The cameras are Panavision cameras with the classic white film mm-hmm. uh, magazine with the black yeah, magazine with the black uh center core right so they're white with two dots which are the center cores that looks almost identical to the masks at the um jupiter's clan stuff when there's got like they're selling alien paraphernalia mm-hmm. right and um and then i've heard people discussing well it's just right from the outset like the um the father of OJ is killed by money, right? And like, like it's money that mm-hmm. kills him. And it's like, and so like you can start at almost every point in the film finding these little references or not, or you can just be like, no, that's what an alien mask kind of looks like and it's a coincidence or just happened to look like something that will happen to be in another part of the film that doesn't seem necessarily geometrically uh, thematically connected. Well, so you the question even go. is: Do you go there on all yeah. those things? It's...
2: Well, I think I think the the beauty of those things is that that is subtext that you can that you don't have to think about that you will also get without thinking about it. Like it's subtle enough that you know they that you your body goes oh, your brain goes oh, okay, and you it, it builds the it builds the world. So that later you can think about it or you could get it in the theater at the moment it depends what kind of film goer you are um you know i i i was struck by um through some personal connection of not similar events but uh events where things happen similarly with I think they called them like terrible miracles or th- whatever it was like the chaos yep. of the set and then there's the shoe standing on its end mm-hmm. which seems improbable amongst the chaos but that yet there it is and it's these little moments of like even in even in these moments of terror there are these small moments of beauty or whatever which you could take as you know through the through the brutality of life you, you have moments of that shine through. And you could go that broader. You could go all the way down to, you know, I mean, it's clearly a movie about filmmaking overall. I mean, yeah. that's, I think, pretty clear. But, you know, you, you go on set and you have these really hard days, but there's these magical moments that happen, whether it's everything and, lining up or an actor doing nailing something or,
1: you know. And there are these amazing coincidences that happen. I, mm-hmm. in my experience on set, there was a, just a quick short n- narrative of one there's a the artist that I did a bunch of work with Matthew Barney um he has as part of his artwork this symbol that is sort of like this it's like this capsule with this line going across it kind of looks like something you might see on a you know on the on a football field or something like as a mark a, ha- a marking on the field or something mm-hmm. but it's this capsule and it's kind of this restraint kind of symbol and you know he came up with that idea a long time ago in his studio and we would go out and we would do these shoots and there was the bathhouse in budapest and that symbol is repeated somehow in the tiles you know and then we were in a a, uh some space in new york shooting i can't remember now where it was but the same symbol occurred and it was kind of cool it was like these weird happy coincidences that would occur Mm -hmm. that seemed very serendipitous but i think they're not uncommon um in Uh, On film shoots, I've heard so many stories from people like that, where there's things where they're like, oh, and then this thing just happened and it was totally perfect, you know, it seemed like serendipity.
0: I think the thing about the shoe that got me was, if you are starting to approach the film from a point of view of looking as a kind of a, you're not just letting it wash over you, you're kind of looking at what's going on and thinking about it. Sometimes those things like the shoe almost took me out of the film because I was almost like, I don't get the shoe thing or at least is the shoe thing going to come back in a really significant way? Like the shoe is such an odd thing. And it's, it's in his secret room at the back. So Mm -hmm. is it like later on going to have immense significance? And if it doesn't, is this some cultural reference that I'm not getting? Um, And then I, my mind is like, from there, I'm on to Monty Python and like we should all take (laughs) off one shoe and follow him because he has shown us the way with the one sandal. And I'm like, I just like my mind is spinning out trying to place what is the cultural reference of this shoe or what is the symbolism of it, and I don't know it's a good thing to be taken out of the film that much while you're watching it because it's such an odd thing that you felt like I you should get it, but I mean they kind of mention it. it?
2: Well, they kind of mention it when they talk about the the they they have that little dialogue about the terrible miracles or whatever the the word thing yeah. is and maybe they needed more but I, but also at the same time it's kind con- you could you and i guess that's the pitfalls of of having like so much nuance to the film that you you know someone might get taken out of it by trying to really like track down every thing that they feel might have a have a significance but really i to me i ascribed it to the to the young boy who was like focusing on it to like try and stay? It was like for him, it was like a moment of of clarity and calmness as a younger kid to to sort of not be a part of the craziness. And then later, it becomes it's almost like a totem for him of sorts.
0: Okay, well maybe maybe that's a bad sure. example, but like it it's I bumped on on bump on, but I kind of did the same thing over that was Fry's Electronics, and I was kind of like, hasn't Fry's gone out of business? And like then I was like. know there just seemed to be some significance of fries that i wasn't getting and uh it seemed not it wasn't not it didn't seem like an l.a thing but yeah it wasn't unimportant but it's just was like for a foreigner i was like what is this about anyway so can i ask you a more obvious question then and maybe i know matt you could address this first but what did you think about these chapters named after the horses like ghost and uh clover and or wasn't just the horses right Gordy was i think one of the chapters but um like they were these very deliberate kind of title cards with lucky or whatever on the screen
1: well they were all, they were all the animals right and the animals yeah. were uh the spectacle right they were the there was like a kind of i i mean at least i took away from it this there was a a kind of a um almost like an animal rights uh kind of activist kind of stance that was being taken uh with regards to you know animals being used as you know performative or uh service creatures in like degrading and uh challenging life conditions like the stories about Um, you know, the carriage horses in Central Park, like dying of heat exhaustion and stuff like that. And, you know, if anybody's ever gone horseback riding somewhere, if you get the bum horse who like, you know, uh, halfway out, Uh, realizes we're about to turn around and go back and it takes off because it just wants to get back to the stable and get you the hell off its back, right? Um, You know, it's kind of, or or swimming with dolphins, you know, that kind of stuff, the exploitation of that thing. I I think that those were interesting choices and that to me, they kind of grounded it back in this concept of exploitation. There's the line about the apex predators, the Daniel Kaluuya Kaluuya line. And Mm -hmm. I really like the... um, I was just going to say, I, I really like the Gordy narrative. I have to say, I want to see that movie. That's a whole <laughs> movie that I want to see where you identify with Gordy from the get-go and like you sort of find him to be adorable and cute and heartwarming but then you slowly start to identify with him in this other way and when he goes off you kind of get it you know i think that's interesting and it plays into some of the thematic ideas behind things you know like the planet of the apes movies and stuff like that to some degree but But also um, also
2: the the apex predator thing like you know um goes to um i mean clearly on that sitcom gordy is the apex predator if it comes down to it which he mm-hmm. proves the the horse on that when they when they do the like little visual effects kind of sequence you know when when the daniel Kalu- kaluuya's character is there with the horse and he's kind of like timid and then his sister comes in and she's the one who's like you know all right everybody we're gonna do this we're gonna do that whatever and they they bring the chrome ball and everything out in front of the horse and the horse sees his reflection in the chrome ball um and then you know gets to be dangerous that the the horse becomes the apex predator there because it has the strength whatever Mm -hmm. and he and Daniel Kaluuya's character is sort of the mirror uh for the audience to understand what that means because later when he sees the UFO he realizes That the ufo is an animal of sorts he hasn't quite worked it out and he doesn't look at it and when he doesn't look at it is when he's not challenging the apex predator they always say don't look you know a bear in the eye or whatever Mm -hmm. it is uh you know then it it goes over him so it's it's you know it's kind of all connected in in this a bit of a reverence for the for something that's larger than you yeah, and the chapter the chapter
1: names, I think, just reinforce that thematically. Like, I don't know that they necessarily, at least to my understanding at, 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 to this moment in time, like, I don't know that they had any greater significance than that.
0: We can't pass that sequence with the uh, horse at the uh, state without commenting on the fact that as he's outside leaving, they're wheeling in a green screen, yeah. effectively horse, <laughs> uh, <laughs> like a... Uh, a kind of wooden horse that is gonna uh i mean yeah that was really a uh, delightful um sequence in its entirety and and um, setting
2: up the cinematographer who comes back later like it was so perfect yeah. that the whole he's like it's the light the laser the crank was, and the whole you got to shoot it on film you know the whole thing like the, he was so actru- perfect the
1: actress and her like manager or whatever when they come in and you know his name is oj which of course is no mistake i think and Mm -hmm. she's this blonde woman and she's sort of like put out by the fact that oh your name is oj and then the agent comes in and speaks right in front of everybody in just the most sort of hideously toxic Mm -hmm. and like offensive rude way i mean it's just so but it's so kind of like I think we've all met people like that, you know, in the mm-hmm. business or whatever. And, you know, they're, I think, few and far between. I, I, I wonder how long people like that really can last because it's just such a grotesque persona. But, you know, there is that culture, too, of enabling a certain kind of, um, uh, you know, like fantasist kind of hierarchy
0: mm-hmm. on some sets, for sure. So let's switch gears to talk about the visual effects so i often joke that one of the annoying things about visual effects is someone says i want this amazing incredibly impressive you know just extraordinary alien something i've never seen before you know like give me that and it's like well in some areas like aliens it's really hard to come up with an extraordinary alien that no one's ever seen before or for that matter an alien ship that no one's ever seen before but i have to say they nailed it and knocked it out of the park. Mm -hmm. Unusual, unexpected aliens I've never seen before. Like this had, uh, no reference that I could bring to an obvious other films alien, if that makes sense. No.
2: The only other, it it looked like either Tarsum designed the alien or the director Tarsum. or Mm -hmm. that which he didn't, but, uh, or, um, my I, my kid asked me like you know he's 15 he saw the movie he loved it and he's like what did you think of the alien and my response which he didn't get until i sort of explained it to him was it's to me it felt like someone looked at a lot of roger dean yes album album covers <laughs> like it, it had that kind of really like out of the out of the mm-hmm. box kind of like real flowy organic thing, but also like, I don't know mm-hmm. the fabrics of like boxes inside boxes, inside boxes, like the it hadn't, it had, an, crazy, it had yeah. like an eternity, uh, uh infinite, infinite nature to it because of the fabric and fabric can be like a Mobius strip. It could be all sorts of things. It just had this really inherent vibe of, I don't know. It was just, as you said, Mike, like it was, I was like, that's fucking amazing. Like, yeah, yes. it, it even, it, even
0: the idea of it being in a cloud and the cloud not moving yeah. was just a nice, refreshing take rather than, you know, I feel something going wrong in the fabric of the space-time continuum. Yeah. You know, it was like, that cloud hasn't moved in three days. That's well, and not from, right. And
2: that, the, and that the ship itself was the alien, yeah. right? Like yeah. it had yeah. a mouth and a like all those little touches of somebody really thinking about it and going, well, fuck it. Why can't? The ship
1: itself just be like sucking people up and eating them yeah and it it kind of it i I think from a design standpoint it was super exciting because it had it sort of had i felt like references to other things to other objects certainly to other earthly creatures like it kind of looked like a Mm -hmm. sand dollar certainly kind of looked Mm -hmm. like a a jellyfish it looked kind of to me at some points like a cowboy hat you know which seemed also appropriate but it also played on um the, 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 I forgot about the squares, you know, that thing, mm-hmm. that sort of mouth of it or whatever that was, it was, is very reminiscent to me of the mandel bulb, uh, in, um, what's the movie, the, what's it called? With oh, lots of an- Annihilation. It, it was, uh, oh, right. Annihilation, the big mandel bulb thing that sort of then does yeah. the dance. But then also when it, when it becomes the sort of ribbon-like jellyfish creature, it also really reminded me a lot of the effect that occurs in under the skin to the men who are then compressed yeah. and flattened. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so there was a kind of, um, a play, a play on a lot of sort of other themes with the sort of, um, changing form and shape of the creature and, and other, mm-hmm. and other sort of alien or science fiction kind of things that we maybe have seen in the past, but it felt fresh and new in its own kind of design language.
2: And it was yeah, full no, it, daylight. It was in full daylight at the end, which I thought mm-hmm. is always impressive. And right. you can do that as we've <laughs> commented before, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah. And the visual effects supervisor on this, done an incredible amount of work from, you know, Life of Pi to 1917. And uh, just like, this is an experienced hand at the wheel. Uh, but I've got to say, like, uh, there was, I thought it was, But it was so alien that it challenged me on, like, believability almost because I I sort of needed some sense of a, I I couldn't even sort of understand it in a conceptual sense of like there's a brain or there's a point that's driving it because there was no sort of obvious head, you know, with extremities kind of logic. Now, of course, that's exactly what you should be doing. You should be challenged over the notion that it has to be some way you know, referential to what we're kind of used to. But yeah. But then you have to, if you take away all of that, you then still have to give it motivation and intent, or otherwise it's just a random sequence of stuff and then it's not threatening because it's not got a purpose. And I thought that was the real artistry of this, taking away the things that would be everything that you would use to provide uh, the stance, the motivation, the facial expressions, the, the you know, movements that would be all the things that we would go to beyond dialogue to, to, to imply intent, motivation and subtext, mm-hmm. and then still have the darn thing look like it was moving with a purpose and not just sort of randomly wobbling around eating people. Um, I, I can't begin to articulate how hard that must have been for the uh, animation and sim team.
2: Yeah, Yeah, I mean, well, it's also, I think it's a credit to the writing too, because the writing is setting a stage that, you know, especially OJ and his, and his sister and uh, the guy Angel from the Fry's, um, you know, like all of their interactions and their commentary about it is, uh, you know, partner to what you or yourself are trying to work out as an audience member. So you're alongside them, they clearly have more information than we do in a lot of ways because it's, you know, they, they're they figuring it out and we're observing them figuring it out at times. I don't think there's a lot of information we get that they don't have, which kind of is, you, you know, a lot of times the audience is, you know, we feed the audience a little information that they can feel ahead and feel, you know, stress for a character or something before the character knows what's happening. I don't know that that happens a ton in this, uh
1: I could be just miss uh I don't think so. I think you're right. I mean I don't I don't remember there being so a lot of
2: pseudo-observational. Yeah, there's a lot about of about the care about the alien.
1: Yeah. Know? Yeah.
2: And so they're creating the mirror for it. And then to your point, Mike, with the animation and the Sims and all the sort, when it comes in low and kind of scoops over and hangs out for a second, like we get the feeling it's a, it's looking for something. Has it found the thing it's looking for? Is it stalking? Is it, you know, all that kind of apex predator kind of whatever it is, like nine steps of the wolf kind of
1: hunting, you know, thing. And I think the visual effects team and the the sort of, you know, uh, the DP, the director, like, you know, they really are able to create and execute it in a way that portrays a certain... Kind of scale on a thing that's hard to portray scale on because it has so few features on it right but Mm -hmm. you really do get a sense of its size one because they do eventually bring it so close to the ground plane but you know the the sort of fabric sims that occur on the bottom of it you know when you sort of see it coming in and swooping down it's just enough of a scaled kind of ripple that you, end the dust that's being kicked up and whatnot, the mm-hmm. practical dust, but maybe also the, uh, you know, any Sims that are done. It, it does portray a scale that feels really large. Um,
2: and also much, once
1: you get an animal or a person, you know, moving up towards it
2: in the totally, vacuum, yeah. you know, yeah. all of a sudden you get the scale there yeah. too.
0: As much as I totally admire the sim uh, modeling and animation of it, I think we should also give a huge shout out to the lighting team and look dev and, uh, and comps, because as you said, mm-hmm. it's in full daylight there at times, but getting that thing feeling like it was sitting in the plate, uh, yeah. given the constraints were just enormous. Right. And it had to have the right amount of bounce light, the right mm-hmm. amount of like uh, shadowing and it had to, produce those things in in the environment around it because it's such a big, uh, you know, element. And so often when you put something like that, in a open sort of scene like that in daylight, it just looks wrong. Mm. Um, and this never did. This never looked yeah. – like if you told me that they'd got a hot air balloon and kind of done some stuff with stuff, I'd have gone, well, that sounds hard, but, yeah, I can see it, which they obviously didn't, right? But I'm just well, saying like –
2: So I think that leads us to the cinematography because the cinematography and the things that they did to create the nighttime, the day for night stuff specifically, obviously the daytime stuff is just daytime cinematography, but um, the day for night stuff is also adds to how the comp teams and everyone, you know, lighting and everything you're saying has to work within those parameters of a, of a unique look that they were able to create. Um, I know that, during the day and i think even at night because they shot the night during the day and i can explain it if you want me to um the they only sure, shot why on don't cl- you they, it.
0: They,
2: Yeah, they Just only shot on cloudless listening. days. Yeah, so they only shot on cloudless days so that they could have a clean sky to to get you know really clean mats uh, cuz all the skies are replaced or at least the clouds are uh, so they could manipulate them but Um, Similar to the I think we talked about this on Ad Astra, which is where Hoyt Van Hoytema um, sort of figured out this trick when he did when they did the moon uh, moon uh, lander battle or moon rover battle in Ad Astra. He had created a uh, stereo rig an over under stereo rig um, with zero offset matching the lenses with a film camera on the straight ahead plane. And the camera up to the mirror was a modified digital. I think at the time it, might, it was an Alexa uh, Mini L, or an LF or something. And in, in this one, it's a Alexa 65. But he, they have it modified for uh, infrared. So it's picking up just super high contrast Luma plates with no sharp and no, no um, debayer happening. So there's no softening of the image. There's no color filtration, nothing. And they're able to blend that high contrast with the original RGB, you know, plate cinematography at the same time to create these super high contrast looks that you couldn't get in one camera or one capture. Uh, So they did the same thing in this, but I think it was IMAX and Alexa 65 uh, or um, some other 70 mil. Yeah, IMAX whatever uh they did the same thing but to fly those cameras they had to build their own head i believe for it um or some some like serious engineering to be able to fly it around um for the day for night so similar they shot during the day which i'm sure everybody loved uh not having to shoot at night and did the same thing modified Alexa 65 for infrared for the super high contrast plates to mix with the film and You have all this sunlight acting as later moonlight that you can dial in and out with the Luma plates to really, you know, figure out how to get this bright moonlight that you could never shoot in that clean because the image is beautiful, right? It's super clean because they're shooting in bright sunlight, low ISOs. You have all this opportunity to really, you know, manipulate your negative digitally or chemically. And it's, it's a brilliant... It's a brilliant move.
0: but I've got to say, if you're on set when they were doing it, because, you know, like the traditional thing about day for night is just don't include the sky. You're going to make a day for night. Just don't have a shot that pans up and shows the sky. That's like (laughs) your rule of thumb from like, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. And this was the exact opposite, as you pointed out. But if you'd been standing there in the middle of the day in a hot sun and like, the heat and, you know, full shadows that are high con shadows. Surely mm-hmm. you'd have just looked at someone and gone, you sure this is going to work? it doesn't look <laughs> like it will. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, totally. I would have been like, um, okay. Just doesn't yeah. feel like it's even vaguely possible to pull off. I know that yeah. with the infrared and stuff, but man, it must have been a, I guess he'd done it before, but it would have been an act of faith for me. I don't totally. mean, like, sure this is no. Yeah. I would be like, how many tests did you guys do? You know, like <laughs> you did what? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the lovely thing about infrared, right? Like, because it's showing heat and the sky to our eye is blue, but to infrared is cold. It just goes mm-hmm. dark, which is of course, it's actually what you're for day for night. So it makes sense. Logically. I'm just saying standing there on the set. No, of course. <laughs> like, of God, course. You'd yeah. have been like, you guys are nuts. I can imagine someone from catering, going, I'm sorry, what? you're doing what? I think you guys have made a mistake. (laughs) It says in the script, it's night.
2: Yeah. They're like, I mean, we'll make the soup, but you sure you don't want
1: it at night? You know. Yeah. (laughs) I think the cool thing about it too, just from a viewing, like just, you know, I didn't know anything about that when I saw the movie and watching it and seeing these shots out kind of on the plane at night and, you know, the uh, OJ character is out there kind of like looking off into the distance, you know, and, uh, it, you feel this kind of harsh, uh, like a hard moonlight kind of thing happening. Yeah, and uh, it is just gorgeous. And it, you know, the sound design and the cinematography in those moments, it looked totally real to me. I was like, man, that is some gorgeous night cinematography. Is what <laughs> yeah. I was thinking, you know. And then to find out uh, uh, afterwards that it, the way it was done, it's like, wow, okay, dang, like that's a real, like, clever technical achievement that yields in a really just fantastic result that is so uh, Mm -hmm. really just unusual. When you think back on like, you know, (laughs) the really corny day for night stuff, like back in the like fifties and whatnot, when you're, you know, it's so obvious what
0: it is. If you want to see a really good example of it not working, uh, watch Life of Brian. Cause in Life of Mm -hmm. Brian, he's meant to be, uh, John Cleese is standing there and he's meant to be day for night. And Cleese, I think I've recounted this story before, Cleese uh, just declared to the director, one of the other Pythons, that he wasn't willing to act on the right-hand side of his fellow actor. He ended be on the left-hand side. And Terry, who was the director, was like, but you can't do that because the sky will get in it. it's day for night. It's the one thing you can't do. And Cleese was like, well, I, I've only performed this and rehearsed it going to my left, right? So I have to be on the, uh, you know, the left-hand side of frame. It's the only thing that works. And so they had a huge stand up fight. And in the end, they just filmed it the way Cleese wanted. And if you watch the day for nightness of that Python scene where he's writing um, Romanist S go home, whatever it is, it just looks bad. It just doesn't look right. And <laughs> to. to Terry was like on commentary tracks. like, I hate this shot. I hate it. Cleese, I hated him. And Cleese was like, nobody cares about the sky. It was my performance. (laughs) But it's just a classic example of like why you don't do it because it just doesn't look right. It's like a night Mm -hmm. shot, but the sky is really bright. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't even think you have to – I mean, maybe that is going back 40 years. Now I I say it out loud, I'm contradicting myself. But anyway, my point was um, (laughs) – you just normally never see it done because it just looks so wrong but hey we need to talk about the monkey in the room because that's the other Mm -hmm. huge visual effects part about this uh rampaging uh, monkeys and uh, gordy's uh attack of death um which you know makes sense in many respects i've often thought that like you know having animals on set they're not domesticated and you know they are incredibly Mm -hmm. strong i don't ever recall actually seeing that in a film having a what would otherwise be you know heroically happy cheery cutesy monkey ripping the cast to pieces maybe it's been done before i just don't remember it but boy it was another original take but some hardcore vfx Matt, do you want to talk us through like uh what we were looking at with that monkey because clearly it wasn't a blood-soaked actual chimpanzee
1: no yeah and it is a play on a real event that took place of a woman uh who there's a it's, it's pretty horrifying but if any of you is kind of curious there is something grotesquely fascinating about it where a woman was attacked in the here in the united states by her friend's pet chimpanzee and the chimp uh was alarmed by a an elmo doll that she was carrying and the real chimp went crazy and it 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 attacked her friend and it bit her and uh bit off like huge parts of her face And i mean it's really horrific but she's interviewed uh on oprah winfrey the woman years later and talks about the incident and then has all this surgery and gets kind of like face replacement surgery i mean just a horrific horrific tale but um you know, sort of a grotesquely, like darkly fascinating one in the minds of, you know, people like Jordan Peele. And I I kind of grotesquely find it interesting only in that, you know, it is what you say, Mike, right? Like a, a non domesticated animal being, you know, in a human world with an expectation of a certain kind of learned behavior, but a sort of the denial of the true nature of the creature. But so in the the film, if I understand correctly, you know, it's a beautiful uh, digital execution of the character, but they shot an actor on the set, I think, right, and had the actor sort of do the performance and then.
0: Uh, Oh, it wasn't just any actor. It was uh, Terry Notary, who was famous for, you know, King Kong, uh, Avatar, Hobbit, Planet mm. of the Apes. This guy is like, uh, you know, one of the world's great, uh motion capture you know uh actors who have done apes chimpanzees and primates Mm -hmm.
1: so yeah Yeah, but they captured the performance and then did a you know a replacement with the gordy character uh and i think it was interesting because you know when you watch it I, i felt like well okay that's a digital ape not because i know it's a digital chimp but because i've seen so much great digital chimp and ape work in king kong Mm -hmm. and in the planet of the apes and in the umbrella academy Mm -hmm. like we've seen it so many times when i i see it now i just think like well yeah i mean that's another spectacular execution of a brilliant character well animated well articulated who conveys an in an enormous amount of Emotion and empathy and fear and uh, menace, Mm -hmm. you know, all through this performance uh, that is, I, I guess, partially captured, but maybe also to some degree animated. And it's just phenomenal. The look of it, the lighting, the hair, the the fact that, you know, Gordy is wearing like a a sweater and it's Gordy's (laughs) birthday. Right. I think in the story, I mean, it just they play up all those aspects of it to such dramatic intent. And the the horrifying menace in the scene of the beating of the face and then the the sort of face going down and coming up with the blood of the, the young woman actor in the sitcom. We don't see the gore, but it's almost more menacing because we don't. Um, and in that way, I think, you know, it kind of makes me think, too, the gory scene, but also the sort of way in which we're sort of introduced to the, which I never understood why they called it Jean Jacket, the alien.
0: Yeah, I didn't get that. I didn't get that part, but... Yeah, but, the um, alien, which we're not allowed to call a UFO, we have to call it UAP, was Jean Jacket. Yeah. I've actually resisted jean, using it in the now because I just don't find it weird. Yeah, jean jacket character.
2: was one of the courses they had, right? It was. Okay. So I said yeah. they were, re, I think they were referring to its behaviors similar As to the liked, way that had an issue of, or was, I, I forget. I think it was the early or wasn't jean jacket. Then I forget. Cause they go on the, on the story about his the, dad, right? The drive the 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 galloping horse in the first the, moving images, you know, of a black rider oh, who got yeah yeah who got you know who got you know like was uh was you know sort of later erased. of course yeah yeah erased from history of of sorts and whatever. So they're going through that whole thing.
1: I can't remember which horse was Jean Jacket. It might have been the one um, that they tell the but, story about that his dad. Like yeah. when his dad was still around. That was one of the first ones. His dad broke that horse yeah. or something, right? In something like that. Yeah. I, I vaguely recall um, that, but, but there's but, so but it much made stuff unpack there. Oh, for sure. I just wanted. No, no, to I'm just finish gonna say, up on the, the so much
0: stuff. Like yeah, we can, on the go for Gordy it, I thing. Say. I
1: just wanted to finish the bit, like with the Gordy menace that we don't really see, but we hear and we imagine, and then with the early introductions of the sort of character that becomes known as Jean Jacket, the alien character. Um, it also, the other movie we haven't mentioned that I think it's so similar to in so many ways, at least in that in the middle sequence when the guy from Fry's comes out with the cameras and stuff, it's Jaws, right? It's well, literally yeah, it's just totally. Jaws, you know, like, but it's a Jaws that's sort of like upside down Jaws, right? It's everything's inverted. The sky is the mm-hmm. ocean and the, the alien is the shark and stuff. But there's this very Jaws-like, you know, where you don't really see it. a long time you just see sort of glimpses of it in the same way that you don't see the the clouds like the barrel yeah yeah Yeah.
0: but i mean but there are so many other aspects to that like just going back to gordy for a second right Mm. you talk about the gore but you and i found it like heart-wrenching seeing that young actress as an older woman in the uh automated uh, motorized wheelchair with a veil that was like Mm -hmm. oh my god that's kind of like killer and uh yeah i just the fact, then, then you were talking about the uh, erasing of history with the, not knowing the name of the black actor, but also mm-hmm. that there's father's thing in the Scorpion King, I think it was, was all all the horses were replaced with camels. And then yeah. OJ's mm-hmm. thing where his horse is replaced by a wooden horse. And, yeah. uh, you know, like there's so much stuff going on there. And then- Well, and the, OJ the himself is horse, being
2: replaced at a certain point because of how the business is running and and all that but you know. then the,
0: the the but the big one of course we need to discuss is what sets off Gordy is the balloons at the birthday and what gets you know uh the alien or our um our uap at the end is the balloon right like it's mm-hmm. just like there's a lot of balloon metaphors here <laughs> the the, the <laughs> there's a lot the, of hot air in human- hollywood <laughs> exactly and those yuck, uh yuck. those collapsing promotional things that they have at car yeah. yards that uh yeah. which you know
1: I sort mean, of those banner flag things the string flags. no the yeah. people the guys the, you know the people, the, people
0: that oh, those around the, 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 I I love the floppy those like
2: pipe people yeah. kind of
0: like balloon people right but they're yeah. like also standing in somewhat as a metaphor for the audience right who's kind of like mm-hmm up and down and up and down and kind but of they also are and, kind you know. of
1: they're also kind of the barrels in a way too like they're the thing or the chum or something you know like
2: that all oh, right they,
1: because of the uh because when it kills the electricity as it goes
0: yeah goes by they right go yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, there's there's just a layer upon layer upon <laughs> layer of like stuff going on here. but that's what that's, it,
1: I... that's what we we're saying at the beginning too that's where this movie's so interesting if you really start to dive into it and talk about it, like we are now, like there's, it's rich, it's a rich and like, you know, in the end, I think pretty original film, even though it's riffing on and borrowing from all these other mm-hmm. stories, like there's so much there and so much to explore. I'm sorry, Jason, I didn't mean to cut you off.
2: No, no. I mean, it's, well, that's the thing is, is there's, you know, look, we've all, any filmmaker, I mean, how old is Jordan Peele? He's gotta be in his late thirties, if not 40. Right? I, mean, I would've orient- said he's in his forties. Yeah, forties. I mean, anyone who's a filmmaker is has watched X movies that everyone's watched, right? I mean, it's just, it's just a fact. There's no way you can't be influenced by X number of films. Even if you, you know, like, okay, you're Charlie Kaufman, you're doing like this crazy stuff. Like there's still references he's pulling other stuff too like you can't not be influenced by things how you show those influences is the trick right are you Mm -hmm. fan servicing those or are you are they just happen to be filtrations of ideas like in this case where sure you could say it's jaws or it's this but Jaws wasn't the first movie to have, like, a it's Creature from the Black Lagoon. It just, he did it. Sure. He had his own version of it because the shark didn't work and he was forced to do X, <laughs> Y, and Z because he's a smart, creative guy. You know, great. But, I mean, that's, it's interesting to, to try. Do you, you, we can all find these things. And I'm not saying they're not there and I'm not saying he didn't put them there. But there's also the fact that they're just going to be there potentially in this, in this type of film uh, anyway. Mm-hmm. But... I wanted to go back to your Gordy statement about the animation because this part that really got me was when he's sort of leaning against the chair and we first see the young Stephen Young character under the table, and the camera kind of cuts back to Gordy and he's just kind of hanging out like he's kind of he's bloody and he's backs to like the edge of the sofa, and he's just looked they're looking at each other. You don't know if he's gonna attack him. You know, what the kids trying to stay calm and just the look on Gordy's face of like kind of confusion, but also like happy to see him, like their friends. So like, oh no, we're cool, that kind of thing. And then he just like, you know, turns it it just like tweaks and goes back to the girl. Like, there's so much subtle animation in that that of course the motion capture actor can provide, but I mean an animator is gonna make that sing. And I think yep. there's just so much, there's so much good work just in that moment. That's a great call uh, too. That, that, that recall, really, that moment
1: is so good. Yeah. And like, and the- That's the, what makes it work. Well, it otherwise makes he
2: it, has no, hum, he has no pathos.
1: Yeah. and it But it makes it also s- that moment where he then goes back to the girl. God, it yeah. makes it so much more disturbing too. Like, cause there's that moment of recognition. It's so like with the kid. Yeah. yeah. So good.
0: I, all, I know I want to talk about the visual effects, but I did thought it was a really, really interesting choice that when that character is older and talking to OJ for the first time uh, about when OJ is trying to buy his clearly now eaten horses back, um, that, the way that the character recounts the incident looking back is not through the lens of his own experience, but through the lens of Saturday Night Live. Mm-hmm. And he, it's been raised by some people online that like he's sort of replaced the whole incident in his head with the Saturday Night Live version of it. Um, and I found that interesting at so many levels because that's what happened. Like things move from the reality of them to the zeitgeist in to then mm-hmm. to some kind of version of it where that – comical version or the retelling of it becomes the reality for many people and you kind of lose sight of what actually happened you know it would be uh, a line or a joke that would come up that that monkey uh, chimpanzee had killed people and that and the horrific nature of that actual incident would be lost in the comic value and you know you can imagine a comic making that cracking egg what well, too soon and you know people laughing and then at some point it's not too soon and you're making jokes about rampaging killer monkeys completely obliterating the horror of the incident for the individual um well that's what i was going to say like
2: it's i i think your your point is one layer of the zeitgeist section and then the the reason you could if you want to start diving into the character's motivation the reason he's doing that is just he how would you deal with that kind of trauma as a child you would you know uh, children deal with all sorts of traumas and we all see you know, we've all read, seen movies, stories, books, or real life events of how it manifests in, in adulthood. Um, in his case, he has created his own spectacle that he, he now controls, but his method of dealing with his trauma is reducing that to humor. And re- to your point, Mike, replacing the horror of that moment with a caricature of it, because that's much easier to understand in a in a, whatever that sketch would be, like a three minute sketch of history that probably took, you know, hours of his life or longer at the
1: as a younger child. Yeah, the simu- oh, sorry, simu- can I what is it? simulacrum better- or whatever, I think is the mm-hmm. term, right? And it's like an imitation of the thing. But yeah, that's a, I mean, it's such a great point too, that that character, he's, his sort of investment in his own history is a secret that like he's using to monetize. Mm-hmm. But then he's also monetizing and exploiting, you know, the jean the jacket in the exact same way that as a child he experienced and participated in a devastating exploitation of Gordy. Right. Yeah. I mean, and the end result uh, is the same. Yeah. Yeah. And and so it's it's from a the reinforcing point of view. metaphor.
0: I just thought they made a really viable, I know it's not a big point, it's a tiny point, but it's still, I just thought it looked like an actual Saturday Night Live skit. Do you know what I mean? Like when they do those things mm-hmm. sometimes, <laughs> they, you, they always feel a bit cringy because it's like, no, it doesn't feel real. And I was like, I could almost imagine that being on YouTube. Um, it was well, so, Jordan uh, Peele's comedy Peel, background yeah. certainly
2: <laughs> gives him the ability to have like a broad palette to work with.
0: yeah. But you want that in art department, right? Like you want the other mm-hmm. people have commented on the back of um, Jip's jacket, like when he's standing there uh, at the end uh, trying to summon jean jacket. His, his own shirt, jacket, whatever he's wearing, this red thing has this kind of pattern on the back of it that clearly is sort of self-referential to the film. But it's like all of those details in the art department, all those details in the production design, all those little touches that really elevate a film. I still think though, if I can get back to where we started, that as much as I loved the visual effects and thought they were stunningly original and incredibly well executed, I just thought the film was a bit, it it just lacked for me um, the through line that I got from a film like Arrival, where in the film like Arrival, I felt very rewarded for everything that they were doing and that everything really added up. And in this, when I came out of the end of it, I thought, well, yeah, it's very self-referential. It's very well done, very well executed. But I just didn't feel the sense of satisfaction. Whereas the film Arrival, which was also, let's face it, like not an immediately obvious way to deal with Mm -hmm. aliens. They're much more sort of, you know, targeted physical aliens in that sense. But still, they were like, you know, fairly original. It just felt so rewarding to have got to the end of the film. Whereas when I walked out of this one, I was like, well, that was a thing. Um, and I didn't need a lot of dissection, and it was rewarding to discuss it. Just didn't – I would go back and watch Arrival this afternoon in a heartbeat, right? If you said it was on TV or you want, somebody mm-hmm. said I wanted to watch it. I don't know I'm going to be a couple of years from now racing to see back this film, but maybe I'm alone in that. Maybe, well, I, I, Jason, think would that's a I would you be like
1: – Oh, sorry.
2: yeah. I mean, I would happily see this movie again. I think for Let's me – I'm so tired of movies that don't try that just seeing a movie where somebody really just fucking tried, it makes me so happy. And so I feel rewarded by, I don't care if I understand it, like, like watch Alex Garland's movie, men, like the, these are movies that people should be making and large budgets should be given to movies like this to show people what's possible. And look, could there be derivative sort of inspiration off Nope, where you get maybe, and I'm not saying this t- about your your comment, Mike, specifically, but where there's maybe a more cohesive sort of th- like product out of it. Sure, the, everyone's gotta, someone's gotta do it first. I'm not saying this is like a, bi- a million percent original, as we've been saying, but his take and his viewpoint it's his specific viewpoint. I, I, It bothers me when you can tell a director didn't have a viewpoint. And he very clearly has a viewpoint and an idea and a concept. And I, I believe, without knowing anything that was in his head or whatever, that he succeeded because the audience has so much to talk about. And has so much to say worked or didn't work or whatever, but ultimately you can't say it's a failure because you can't even fully get it. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying you, I just mean, most yeah. people, all people, I don't sure. think would, you can't get all of it because he has a, There's shit that he would say, oh, I didn't mean, you know, all art critique is the audience saying it means this and the artist going, actually, I was just brushing my teeth and I loved how the (laughs) paint came off on the wall. You know, like there's all sorts of different reasons things happen. And I I don't know. It just makes me happy that
1: people are trying. I love that like this is one of the like a one of the first times in a pretty long while where I feel like me and Jason are like in lockstep (laughs) agreement on this movie, which is really interesting. It makes me wonder if there's a cultural thing too. Like, you know, because we're both, you know, grew up in the United States. I wonder if there's some aspect of it to that. But I also think like, you know, to the broader points you're making, Jason, I absolutely agree. And I think that the the fact that this is a film that is challenging in some ways it's, I think, uh, amazingly entertaining. It's visually beautiful. There's great actors in it who are just really magnetic and fun to watch on screen. Um, you know, I don't know that they're the most richly developed characters, but I love that uh, a filmmaker like Jordan Peele has made, you know, three feature films and they're all pretty different and they're different tonally and style. And, but there's a, there's this subtext and undercurrent that is, him you know that is his you hear his his insight his vision his voice you know coming through in all the works that he's you know the three films that he's now written and directed and i think they're all uniquely challenging in different ways and 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 really original yeah despite what you're saying too and i think i get what you're saying jason too about it being like there it's borrowing from all these things but it's its own thing Mm -hmm. yeah I would also add okay. just as a tail
2: to hang what on, I said. On, but, but, oh wait, let me just but, add a tail to what I said is that he's also <laughs> making all three of his films are mo- are movies about the African American experience. Yeah. I am a white dude and there is 100% fact that there is that there are themes and tones in this movie that I don't perceive, right? Uh just okay. just naturally but, and that's and I sure. I, I believe that uh, I, I think that there is. I don't think that's the missing sort of piece to the to the puzzle here. But it's it's a layered thing. Anyway, sorry, Mike,
0: Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, like, my problem isn't with the African American aspect of it, which I thought. No, was I wasn't saying
2: that was a really pro- well, a No, problem. no. But um,
0: my my, no, my problem is, I think, Jeep, like, like Ricky's adult storyline is his character as well is underdeveloped in the latter stages, and his story is oddly sort of parallel but intersecting and it just feels like a whole lot more could have happened with his plot line so i've actually felt like uh it was a and again i'm not african-american or 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 black but it seemed a really rewarding and rich story for those characters that were part of the haywoods plot line but his story just seemed to me to be like we it's so significant in the Timeline of the film and in the actual way that the film plays out, obviously, we sort of start with the uh, the raging uh, Gordy sequence. But then, near the end, I'm almost like, what just why do we kind of lose what he was up to, and why was it seeming to be so shallow near the end? And then you have this extra pump at the end about can the well camera take the shot of the alien and stuff but it was almost <laughs> like so we were just setting up all of that so that we would have that or was there something else i just felt very like i, was I missing hear what you're saying. I,
1: I think that's a, that's a totally valid criticism i think probably if if i were to have a, a specific criticism overall of the film in general it's that like i feel like i i wanted to connect and identify more with more of the characters in an emotive way than i did and i think probably the character i think we, we've mentioned it the character i feel like I identified with the most weirdly emotionally maybe is gordy you know in some weird way <laughs> like there because we're given this best window in there's not a lot of uh development of oj or of his sister beyond like a kind of they, they function more like. Like The the characters in the story, they function more in the way that maybe they do in like a horror, a typical horror genre film, um, where they, they're more like vectors, you know, like they're moving in these different directions and they're pushing the larger narrative forward. I don't know that I felt like a strong sense of uh, character arc or journey within the individual
0: characters. Than... Can, I,
2: can I also throw yeah. out, because I'm thinking about this while you guys are talking and about the Stephen Young uh, character lo- plotline. And it seems to me that if you wanted to assign significance to maybe why the town and, the, and the, the well camera and all that stuff is set up, is that if you go back to think about, there's three, there ends up being three modes of, or three attempts to capture the footage of the alien. There's the like PTZ kind of home cameras, there's the like all out assault of like art trying to capture it. Right. Cause all of the, the stuff the they're trying to DP do with when the, <laughs> when the DP that well, we can just take that as the art film approach. Yeah. Right. And you can even say the first one is found footage kind of mm. approach. Mm. And then the, the well thing, because the well camera is part of that, like, I guess, um, corporatization of, of a concept. That it's almost like the only reason those two things can come together is because like spectacle meets spectacle mm. right that's cool if, if I, I, wanna, I, that. I mean I i'm just that, making all this up i'm just making it up on uh, you know on no, the no, fly no, no, hey, i'm not saying
0: it's i'm not saying it's wrong but like if we were talking about another film I could be saying all this, and you guys could be just laying into me that, well, none of what you just described is anything of an emotional connection with a character, an emotional arc of oh, a character, a development of a character. Yeah. It's it's so like, you know, they criticized Lucas when he did the sequels that they just were all about the spectacle and not about the characters or the characters were very uh, wooden and and didn't have depth. and And so as much as I admire many aspects of the film, it just, yeah, I mean, what do we care about? We care about most about. (laughs) Oh my God. You just got to give it up. You just can't can't continue to obsess on one of the greatest filmmakers of our generation in such a disrespectful way. Good Lord, Matt. All right. No, no, we're just just talking about writing.
1: Yeah. It's just a writing character development. Yeah.
0: (laughs) I I swear to God, I am going to (laughs) fly to the United States and take you to the IMAX version of his next film.
1: Um, oh, that's cool. Okay. That's, uh, so we, we accept this challenge to right it. Here. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay. But I'm that. just simply saying, right? Like that, I do think there was pathos in OJ's. Uh, and I, I really got a lot of that from when he went on set with the horse that was then rejected. And yeah. And uh, the scene was good. That, yeah. So I felt like he had a. And then he really had fight in him at the end. So that had character development. But if you think about the character of uh, Jupe. Uh, i don't know how we want to uh, uh, let's call him Jeep, right i mean um or ricky he's very significant in his trauma at the beginning and then you kind of get this glimpse of how he's dealing with the trauma we're talking about the saturday night live thing and the fact that he's built a private room that people can go and have sex in well overnight for a fee is all really weird and interesting and then it just feels like he just turns up at the end simply to provide a location for the camera and I know he's trying to exploit the character, but that's again, a functional vector as you were talking about, not a yeah, character yeah. thing. There was yeah. no redemption or understanding or insight or development. And why not? He was such a rich, it's like you've gone for tell a joke and you've gone set up, set up. And then when you come to tell the punchline, you kind of don't articulate it properly. So it's not very- fun The
1: only moment is that case. I suppose is when he does retell the story in the sort of secret room to OJ, mm-hmm.
0: and, but that's that's in the first what third of the film, like it's quite early on. I feel it may be
1: halfway in, but I just feel like he. But okay, but when it's he when he recants the narrative, there's thing. a moment where he's sort of being kind of you know jokey, jocular about it or whatever, and he but he he there's they move in on just his face, like a close up of his yeah. face, and his stare kind of goes to the thousand yard stare, and you see the memory, and so you can tell he's. Still, I'm with you. Traumatized it. by it, but yeah, but what they don't but, do anything with but it. But where does the payoff that. of that? Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah.
2: I mean, he, I mean, you could argue that that is the. I'm I'm just spitballing. I'm just trying to be the uh, voice of opposition. You're just trying here, to defend but, a film that you like. No, no, I'm just trying to be the voice of opposition just because it's fun. But uh, I, you could argue that at that point, like he is just stunted. Uh, and has just reverted to providing spectacle on his own for survival, both physically, you know, emotionally and financially. Yeah. I mean, he has the cachet to do it. And so he's doing it. He's, you know, this whole movie is kind of about taking advantage of people and things. Right. I mean, even, even OJ and his family are taking advantage of the horses to a certain extent. They may love the horses and treat them nicely, but they're, making the horses do something that they are not normally naturally meant to do they're being trained to do other things so it's like you could look at it that way too all the characters have been trained to be a certain way even the stephen young character has been trained to function that way as a child actor as a mm-hmm. whatever i don't know i'm i'm my, my well, point started out to be oppositional a... but it it feels it feels okay. right
0: all okay so so let's agree but yeah it's not a it perfect a film. I,
2: think... I mean yeah.
0: Let's agree that like uh, and I think it was MPC that did the hardcore uh sim stuff and and stuff with them um, with our uh UAP but let's agree that's really good. Let's agree that there's a lot to be merited in this film. And then I'm just going to yeah. leave it as a footnote that I would prefer to see Arrival again, which I don't think is a crass commercial film that is without no. but it may but it may be a cultural thing and that I just don't get some of the uh the insightful resonance of uh, social commentary on the film industry that you guys get. And, no, and I don't, for that. I don't I, think that's no, no, true. No, no, you're, I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay with my choices. <laughs> I can live with them, but it's, uh, it's, I, I will be the heathen in this episode and just say, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I. I haven't, I didn't dislike it to the point that I would say to my wife, you know, Jason recommended a film. You know what happened last time when Jason recommended a film, we're not going to Scott do it again. Scott Pilgrim. Yeah. No. So it's oh. not like that. <laughs> Jeez. So I even go there. Uh, uh, Why is it that yeah. I get tagged with these things and <laughs> you guys? <laughs> I, I, I'm going to tell you. Cultural imperialism. Th- I walked I, down to Scott
2: Pilgrim. I didn't even watch them. You whole thing. guys it are so crazy. Stupid. Anyway, uh, I, I will, I will, I will. I, I think the accurate description that you're giving of your feeling of the film is one that my friend gave me about when he first saw Under the Skin, mm-hmm. which was, I didn't like it. I didn't hate it, but I respect the shit out of it. That was his. And, yeah, and when I, can, I saw I it, I, fe- I felt similar. I've seen it again since, and I feel differently maybe. But yeah. like, I think that's a fair representation where, whereas we... We would not use that to talk about a movie called or like The Gray Man.
1: Like people didn't have any respect about, for that film. About the movie Border, <laughs> I love that movie Border. That Swedish Border. Movie. I love, I, I love it. Border. But people tell me I'm crazy when they watch it. They're like, Yeah, that's weird. <laughs> I told a friend of mine to watch it, and he was like, What did you make
2: me watch? I was like, I don't know why you don't love that film. Yeah, it's so good.
0: <laughs> okay, <laughs> anyway. well we're going to leave it there, but uh, it's been an interesting discussion, and. um And as we say, like, it's good that we have different opinions, right? It's a boring show. are just. So um, we're going to move from feature films back to episodic uh, because the next show that we're going to do is going to be focused on looking at the new interpretation of the worlds of both Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings in their respective shows, Dragons and and, um, Rings. Rings. So that's... (laughs) Exactly. So that's... Uh, not the whole seasons of those, we're just going to look at the first few eps of both of those, which are incredible spectacles to link to today's show, but also a monumental achievements in visual effects. Um, and so we give you fair warning, we won't have seen all of them because they won't have all come out yet, but we uh, look forward to having a discussion about those and what it is to to reinterpret a world uh either a couple of decades or a decade or so after an original uh incredibly successful production i think i think i'm going to skip the hobbit and just go straight from like lord of the rings to this new uh rings version yeah this is a more direct uh comparison but yeah you're, you are working in the shadows of giants in both cases as both uh, the original lord of the rings and of course, Game of Thrones, which is some of the most uh, magnificent television and filmmaking that's been done in those uh, kind of general genres. So that's coming up. Uh, but for right now, we're going to wind up the show. And just, Matt, where can people connect with you as we like to uh, just give them capacity to do each uh, episode?
1: Yeah, just go uh, to my website, mattwallen.com. And there you can uh, figure out how to email me and tell me that I'm nuts about Scott Pilgrim or whatever border <laughs> this movie. And uh Jason uh
2: Jason Diamond everywhere you can find me uh our virtual production and other studio in Brooklyn zerospace.co and I want to point out because I meant to bring this up there is a there is a one shot reference in this film that is referential to a film that Jordan Peele was attached to direct but is no longer directing. You guys know the shot and the film no, no, but <laughs> tell me so so when they're going to the town at the end for the for to get the shot in the well or what ends up being the shot in the well, Tiffany and that um what's her name uh the act the lead actress I forgot her name uh, Kiki. Kiki Palmer, yeah, mm-hmm. she's riding a motorcycle, and when she comes in. To the town she does a <laughs> specific power Akira. slide that is a 100% Akira shot, yeah. And he was supposed
1: to direct Akira before he bounced. Oh, down. I Taika's didn't even know that my son and I, Taika, when we saw that, is gonna do it. My son and I just like looked at each other and we're like, Come on, you know, like it was so funny. Yeah,
0: did you say, Did you say Taika's gonna do it? I'm pretty sure he's
1: doing Akira,
2: Taika yeah. Wow, okay, that's interesting. Sure, I, last I read, that. but I mean, I'm sure they've they may have changed it, but I know uh jordan peele was on board for that for before that anyway that was a shot that i remember seeing and being like
0: yes okay (laughs) well (laughs) (laughs) well uh hopefully uh you've uh formed your own opinion on the film and we'd love to hear from you so feel free to email us or contact us i'm obviously at fx guide um otherwise we'll see you guys uh the next time as i say we're looking at the spectacle that is these uh, revisited uh, mythical worlds. But until then, I'm Mike Seymour. Thanks so much, guys. See you next time. Bye. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at thefx at fxguide.com. Copyright FX Guide, LLC.